0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of our Seven Investing podcast. I'm Seven Investing founder and CEO Simon Erickson, joined by my team of Seven Investing Lead Advisors. We've been speaking this last month about the importance of mission statements on setting the tone for an entire organization. And we'll be discussing as a group what we think about how mission statements play a role in our investing research. Hearing from all of our seven investing lead advisors on this podcast, Steve Simon, let me start with you on this question. You know, we always are looking at at finding the market's best opportunities in the stock market. How do uh, how do mission statements play a role in your investing research process?
1: Well, um, you know, the first thing that came to mind was the fact that uh, one of our our guiding principles at Seven Investing is to buy companies, not tickers. Um, And that's to say that we recognize buying a stock represents taking an ownership stake in a real business uh, with real products. And we strive to invest in good companies that are run uh, by people we also consider to be good company. And uh, so in that sense, um, reading a company's company's mission statement is a a fantastic starting point for investors to determine whether... um, Really, you know, the the management uh, being good company actually holds true because when it does, all too often we recognize that that uh, tends to result in outsized gains for investors, of course, coupled with a compelling business model. So I think the, the mission statement uh, is important, but it also needs to be backed up. Uh, by action. It just can't be lip service. So uh, there needs to be some sort of semblance um, that the company is making tangible progress toward accomplishing its mission. Even if you know that might be years down the road, uh, we want to see that there's actual effort and it's not just something they're saying uh, rather than Here, here's some pretty words uh, to entice people. Uh, we need to know it's actually happening.
0: That, that's perfect, Steve. And, you know, a couple of us have actually given some examples of companies that we think are, are actually opportunities because they aren't just offering lip service or actually backing it up with with performance. You brought up the company Lemonade. What is it that, that appeals to you with Lemonade as a company and their mission statement?
1: Right. Um, so it, it's kind of funny to me because it feels like a lot of people have approached Lemonade uh, with a lot of skepticism um, because they're so, um, there's a lot of flowery language like in their S1 when they went public and and, uh, you know, they, they talk about all these buzzwords talking about purely being built on a digital substrate with artificial intelligence and behavioral oral economics at their foundation. And um, Lemonade uh, is really interesting because uh, they have taken significant steps to actually fulfill uh, their mission statement, which is to transform insurance from a necessary evil into a social good. Uh, and, and to that end, Lemonade is actually—they uh, they took an extraordinary step uh, when they were forming the company to become a certified B corporation, a public benefit corporation. Um, which the process, you know, for certifying uh, yourself as a B corp it really is is really rigorous, and uh, it requires they meet certain standards of social and environmental performance. Uh, accountability and transparency. so just that they were able to form themselves uh, that way in the, in the first place um, is really telling in my opinion and also uh, the fact that um, they have a unique business model as an insurer they take a, a flat fee of customers' premiums and ensure uh, you know to ensure they can actually pay claims and build their business and then if there's anything left over, Uh, at the end of the year from the portion of premiums outside of that flat fee, uh, they donate it through their annual give back program uh, to pre-vetted charities selected by customers. So a pretty slick little program. Uh, Again, some people have have been skeptical because they say, Oh, there was only $1 million they gave to the, through the give back, uh, which I think it was like $1.1 million. It was like a 1.5% of their revenue last year. Uh, They ended up giving back, but they also, you know, sort of forget conveniently that uh, a few years ago, their very first give back was only $50,000. And uh, so it's it's sort of skyrocketing in that sense. And I think it will only continue to do so. And the fruits of their scale um, should really uh, yield some incredible uh, results over the long term. But uh, I, I think it's a company that people can feel good about investing in. And uh, that's kind of why they stood out to me.
0: Yeah, fruits of their scale. How appropriate for a company named Lemonade actually putting its money where its mouth is. Great one, Steve. Ticker on that LMND. Max Chatzko, you had a similar message in your perspective this month. Uh, you said that making a mission statement is easy, but the execution piece of it is actually very difficult.
2: Yeah, it's similar to what Steve said. Um, I focus more on that, just not having investors be led astray by uh, some a nice sentence or two with stuffed with a bunch of keywords. Maybe it's just the markets that I cover right in, you know, early stage drug development or industrial biotech or renewable energy. But I've found over the years, a lot of companies, when you don't have much business, you don't have revenue and earnings, they tend to lean a little bit more heavily on their mission statement. I've also observed some companies tend to change their mission statements, maybe every year or more frequently. And to me, if a company doesn't know what its mission ought to be, then why should I pay attention to it? Right. Um, So yeah, it's it's definitely important for investors to remember that, you know, a mission statement is nice to have, and it can definitely help you identify businesses that are trying to make an impact, but you also have to remember that, you know, execution and accountability are really what matters. So is a company executing? Is it making progress both as a business and also against and within its mission statement? Uh, I mean, that's way more important to me than, uh, again, just stuffing a bunch of keywords into a sentence and... uh, it sounds real great. And a lot of companies never live up to it. So.
0: Fair point. Now I remember vividly Long Island iced tea, putting blockchain into the name <laughs> of its company. And then it's the valuation takes off. You're saying it's, it's good to have a healthy dose of skepticism, especially for kind of markets that are still developing out there.
2: Yeah. And Manish and I just published a podcast about this, right? You have to balance optimism with objectivity. So uh, it's great to be using the blockchain. There's real value there, but uh you know, maybe Long Island I isn't the best blockchain investment.
0: <laughs> Fair enough, Max. Manisha, Max, uh, just mentioned that you guys filmed a podcast recently on this. Your perspective this month was uh, entitled Mission Statements in Healthcare. How does this impact your research?
3: Sure, so um, I also primarily focus on drug development and diagnostic companies. And when I am researching a company, that's the first thing I go to because um, most of these companies have the weirdest names. So you have no idea what they're doing. So I don't want to dive right into the technology and not know is it a therapeutics company, is it a diagnostics company, is it a hardware tools company, somewhere in between. So I just go to the mission statement first to understand, okay, first therapeutics, diagnostics, and then I dive into technology. And at the very least, it also tells me um, some mission statements, for example, are very specific, where it's we want to transform um, skin cancer. So then I know they're very specific, very focused, a very niche market. And then there might be other companies where, say, where they're saying um, we, we wanna transform the lives of uh, rare diseases. So I know they're a company focused on rare diseases and some mission statements just talk about the actual product they're using or uh, the tool they're using to deliver um, what they uh, are trying to do, whether it's in therapeutics or diagnostics. So. That's very important to me, uh, just to see and understand um, what I'm diving into before I even start going through their S1 or reading through their technology or science or pipeline. Um, but also it tells me a lot about their culture. Um, I think it's very easy to determine by their mission statement. Um, are they you know, very narrow focused, short-term gains or are they focusing on culture and are they patient centric? I think that's really important to me. Um, I think there's a lot of people in healthcare, for example, or a lot of companies in healthcare where they're just trying to make money. And I feel like those companies don't tend to do well in the long term or if they don't know what they're doing, it's also easy to tell. And if they don't have some sort of focus, um, it's hard for me to take them seriously. So it it's an important starting point for me.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it really helps to frame the conversation to find the company that you're looking at. You mentioned Nintelia is a company that that you kind of thought had a really really good mission statement.
3: Yeah, so um, what they, they have an entire page, but they have at the very top just a one-liner saying they're transforming the lives of patients uh, through potentially curative, and again, uh, I know Max hates the word curative, but they did say potentially curative, uh, uh, um, curative treatments with a single, uh, single dose paradigm or to that effect, and then they continue on talking about exactly how they are trying to go about it. And then they, um, not all companies do this, but they talk about their core values. And that's something that was very interesting to me. It showed me that um, the management team really cared about internal culture. I feel like Um, The culture you create comes from management top down. If scientists are not motivated, um, it's very hard, uh, well, they probably won't retain their scientists and um, it's hard to develop a good product if the internal culture isn't supportive of their employees.
0: Yeah. Thanks very much, Manisha. Take her on that one. NTLA for Intelia. Dan Klein, Max says that there, there should be a healthy dose of skepticism for kind of early markets that haven't developed. Manisha says it helps to frame what kind of business it is she's looking at. You kind of took a measured approach of the two of those, right, where mission statements are important, but we shouldn't confuse that with what the business itself is actually doing.
4: Yeah. So for a very small team like us, a mission statement is really easy to manage and understand and stay focused. It becomes a guiding principle. So if you told me like your small team within Google was really focused on the mission statement, I would believe that. But when you look at a big company, yeah, the CEO is probably focused on the mission statement, but Joe, the vice president is focused on getting his next promotion and somebody else is focused on doing good. So it it means something to me but I do think it's marketing once you get to a certain size that, you know, it's always day one at Amazon is an excuse to treat workers badly. Like, and to maintain a, you know, an endless startup environment where no where everyone works too hard and never rests. And I understand what it means that the, the underlying ideas are never going to rest in our laurels because company, you know, Amazon could become IBM or worse could become GE. Like I get that thinking, but the way it's practiced is only partly that part of it is to justify that you're sort of going to always work in this startup environment, which is crushing. (laughs) So, you know, it's, I have very mixed feelings about mission statements.
0: Yeah. And tell me about, Chipotle was one example you brought up in yours too. Food with integrity is the mission statement, but that kind of distracts at times, maybe Chipotle's focus on serving burritos in the most efficient manager.
4: It hurts them. So when they had their E. coli scare, if they hadn't been telling you how great they were, that would have been a non-story. There there have been fingers found in food at fast food restaurants, and it wasn't a big issue because they didn't spend a lot of time. So I'm not saying you don't have behind the scenes a food with integrity message, but if your message is, wow, our burritos are tasty, and the secondary part is, hey, we locally source and and we do things right, that shouldn't be your core message. When I watch a chipotle commercial and they're like telling me about the farm the pig came from i'm thinking like maybe my burrito should be warm like you know that'd be nice like (laughs) i i I see their failings so i I get the mission but food with integrity isn't their mission brian nickel who came from taco bell his goal is to sell more tacos like it it isn't to, to, to save the world and i understand the founders truly believe that and they're going to honor that commitment but that's not the business focus of Chipotle. The big business focus is to add more units, sell more sell more stuff and make more money. And I wish they were a little bit more honest about it.
0: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, Dan. And thank you for the heads up. I'm gonna be checking my hamburgers next time I go out for the fast food. A little more skeptical <laughs> on that one. Yeah, look, uh, look, now for, on f- look for fingers. Duly noted. And then maybe my final perspective on this is that I think that uh, for me, a mission statement really sets the tone for the organization. I I think that it kind of defines how management makes decisions, uh, whether that be for capital allocation, for expansion, or how it handles difficult situations. And one that I was recently impressed with was was, was with Cloudflare, a ticker on that NET. This is a company that kind of powers a lot of the internet, gets sites up and running, communities, things like this, um, protects them from cybersecurity attacks and various other things. It's kind of the inner workings of the internet. But you know we saw a couple of years ago uh, some problems with with a community called 8chan which was promoting hate crimes and Cloudflare made flade, excuse me Cloudflare made the decision to shut down that customer they said we're going to pull the plug on them we don't appreciate what they're doing and we do not think this is making for a better internet now that costs some money there was a financial impact from walking away from a customer and there was perhaps some brand damage from people that didn't like that decision that they made but they still stuck to their guns. They were guided by that mission statement and there was a business outcome that came from that. So I think that combining all of those together, we've seen some different perspectives on, on how mission statements impact healthcare, how they impact uh, you know fast growing newer industries, how they sometimes might cloud the business operations of a business, and then also how they're kind of helping companies steer what they wanna be when they grow up, whether that be uh, you know eliminate changing the structure of its very business itself, or how they're actually making their decisions. So that's mission statements and the first part of this segment. I'm gonna now change gears and do something I love to do which is put my team entirely on the spot with a game called bullish or bearish. This is something where I've taken a lot of the content that they've written about in the past month and you can follow that too because all of this is publicly available content And I'm going to ask them how they feel about the certain topic in question. If they are a fan of that, they think that this is something that will positively impact whatever the question is. That's bullish. If they're not a fan, they think that it goes the other direction. That's bearish. Uh, Team, are you ready for me to put you on the spot with this game, knowing that you have not seen any of these questions in advance?
3: Sure. (laughs) Yes,
0: we are. The enthusiasm is very clear. Max Chatsko, I'm going to start with you on this one. At 7 Chatsko, by the way, with two Xs on Twitter if you would like to follow Max's conversations out there. Max, you recently pointed out that the U.S. power sector has 40% lower emissions in 2020 than it did in 2005, so it's making really good strides on a couple of different things. It is retiring coal plants, it is investing in natural gas plants, and it is investing also in renewable energy. I think it's safe to say that renewable energy is, is a safe, bull bet. We're seeing the numbers on that one. And I think that it's safe also to say that coal is a bear bet because they are retiring those. My bullish or bearish question for you is how do you see natural gas, the middle of those three, evolving for power production over the next 10 years? Is this something that takes off your super bullish on or a more measured approach on the growth rate for that one?
2: Well, thanks for reading my Twitter. At least somebody does. Um, (laughs) I would say natural gas is probably maxed out in terms of its share of the power mix in the United States. I would also say it's going to play a very large role for the foreseeable future for the 10 years, next 10 years for sure. I would say much longer than that for decades. What a lot of people miss is that, you know, renewable energy potential is dictated by geography so when California has a lot of solar or Texas has a lot of wind, that's great. And that's because they have geographies that allow for that, but you can't copy that and put it in where I live in Pennsylvania. We don't have very much uh, renewable energy potential here in the Pittsburgh region, but we do have a lot of natural gas. Uh, you know, if, if Pennsylvania was its own country, I think it would rank like in the top five for total natural gas. So um, you know, on a national level, I think it's maxed out, but there's still going to be regions and pockets where natural gas is very important. That's probably true for Texas as well. So I think we're, we'd rather, you know, we're going to see coal get phased out and retired probably much faster than anyone expects. Uh, Natural gas is going to hold down the, you know, the rest of that and maybe take some market share away from coal, but yeah, we're going to see wind and especially solar in the next decade take off. Uh, But Yeah. Natural gas is still going to be a very important part of the power mix and a very low cost source of electricity.
0: So, still important, but not super bullish like we saw the unbridled enthusiasm for five years ago or so. Correct. Yep. Okay, great, Max. Maxed out with uh, two X's on natural gas. Dan Klein, I'm going to come to you next at Worst Ideas 7 on Twitter for anyone who wants to follow Dan's commentary. Also, the host of our live stream show, Seven Investing Now. Dan, you and I recently talked on that show about Disney, which I know you have a lot of love for Disney out there. <laughs> It's so impressive that they've already hit 95 million subscribers for Disney Plus. Blew away expectations. A lot of early adopters who already love Disney, like you and I did, signing up for the service. But they've also set a pretty aggressive goal of getting 260 total million subscribers for Disney Plus by 2024. Dan, that's only three years away. And I think a lot of the low-hanging fruit maybe has already been picked. Bullish or bearish on Disney hitting that projection by 2024?
4: No, I'm bullish on it. They have so much of the world left to go. So if you were saying just the US, are they going to add another 100 million subscribers? No, probably not. But they're only in a small handful of countries. And Disney has exposure in India where they could grow massively. Like basically it's not out of the question that China could be a market for Disney. They've done some business there with certain films. Uh, So that's about the Netflix number. I don't see why Disney couldn't get there. And the price point is so low. Um, And you're gonna see a lot of content that would have been theatrical releases end up on Disney Plus. You're seeing it with, uh, it's Rayla and the Last Dragon right now where it's at that premium tier where you could pay a little extra or you could just wait a month and get it for free or maybe it's a couple of months. I think you're gonna see some strategic use of some pretty big movies, uh, maybe in just specific markets to move that needle. But with the opening price, wherever it comes in in your market, $6.99, $7.99, $8.99, those are really no numbers. And if you have kids, you're gonna get Disney. And think how many kids were likely produced during this pandemic. All of those homes are going to get Disney in three or four years.
0: Yes, fair point, Dan. And, and following up on that, is Disney leveraging its existing movie line and its existing uh, brands and IP internationally, or is it developing new shows to appeal to those markets, or, or so, yes to both?
4: Well, for the most part, Disney is a global company. So D- Disney, now, that doesn't mean there won't be specific releases on on certain products they own, that there won't be localized versions of things like, but not anywhere near to the extent that Netflix does. Like a new Star Wars release is a big deal in almost any country in the world. That's true with Pixar. That's true of Disney classic animation. So they own IP that sort of transcends nations. Now that doesn't mean that they're not gonna do original content for India or for Australia or for wherever they happen to be, but it's going to be very targeted and much, much less money, at least much less money spent than what Netflix is doing.
0: Duly noted, okay. Bullish on Disney hitting 260 million subscribers by 2024. Thanks very much, Dan. Manisha Sammy. I'm going to come to you next. We have talked a lot about genetic testing in the last couple of months. I know you're a big fan of this but not all genetic tests are the same. Clinical genetic testing, which is clinically actionable by hospitals, is very different than some of the more direct to consumer genetic tests that you can buy and purchase and take directly at your home. In fact, 23andMe recently launched back in October, 23andMe Plus, creative name for that, of course, that for $29 a year, you can get access to 10 different reports that are based upon your genome. What drugs you'll respond to in certain ways if you might be more susceptible to heart attacks or migraines or various other things. But again, we know that this is genotyping. This is not clinical grade genetic testing. So are you bullish or bearish on 23andMe Plus as a program over the next couple of years?
3: That is a very easy uh, question for me. Um, I am extremely bearish. And the reason is if they're continuing to not innovate on their platform, they're still using microarrays, there is no way that you can actually have a clinical grade test. Um, You won't be able to use the report. And they're also not investing in their reporting system. Genetic tests are hard to read. So unless they in-house genetic counselors, uh, which we do not have enough of, um, a patient can't just take the report, go to their physician and tell them, hey, do you actually run tests on me? And actually, that would cause more healthcare expenditure over time because people won't know what to do with the report. So I think it's almost um, it's irresponsible to give these reports out. And if it's not clinical grade, um, I think a lot of people, they say, oh, you know, you're at risk at some sort of heart disease people won't know exactly what to do. Do we, is it, it, is, is it preventative care? Um, do they change their lifestyle? Maybe they'll do that, but most likely they'll take it to their physician and physicians are already um, overwhelmed with the number of patients they see. And if, they, if they're not um, experts at reading these tests, I just don't see how it's going to be uh, valuable. And actually what you're seeing more and more with 23andMe is they're actually pivoting uh, tr- in trying to work with uh, biopharmaceutical companies and pharma. And I think it's because they realize they don't have the right capabilities, especially, um, you know, they, at one point they uh, claimed that they're going towards or using long read sequencing, but they made no um, steps to actually do that. So I'm very bearish on kind of their future potential.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. Like there really shouldn't be a place for those tests in the hospital because you really wanna make sure you're looking at the right data. Bigger picture though, direct to consumer uh, genetic tests have kind of made a splash in recent years. You can buy wine that is customized for your particular DNA. What do you think about the the DNA, uh, the direct to consumer DNA market as evolving as an entertainment or consumer retail play rather than a medically actionable one?
3: You know, I think a lot of people have fun with that. Um, I know I have a number of friends who actually have taken the, uh, based on my DNA, what wine preference would I have? And it was a lot for um, most or mostly for fun. Um, I think those tests that talk about your genealogy and your ancestry and whatnot, it could still be useful if people are curious. So I think that will be here to stay. Um, I I doubt uh, their accuracy. Um, I don't know if you can actually uh, look at your DNA and uh, you know give a preference list. Um, especially since then, you raise the question of nature versus nurture. Um, it's not just your DNA. There's there's environmental factors.
0: Yeah, great points. Thanks very much, Manisha. Manisha's Twitter handle is. M Sammy underscore seven, uh, spelled the same as Miss Amy underscore seven for anyone who might want to know exactly how to spell that. And Steve, I'll come to you f- uh, last uh, Last but not least at Seven Investing, Steve. Steve, you and I recently chatted with our partners at Crypto EQ mm-hmm. about Coinbase's upcoming direct listing. And one of the topics we discussed in this, which, which by the way, this is something that will be available for Seven Investing subscribers um, going forward every month is conversations about the developments taking place, but we kind of looked at, at what this would mean for equity holders that wanted to buy the stock of Coinbase once it comes public here at the end of the month or early next month. And this is a brokerage where you can buy cryptocurrencies, just like you might use Charles Schwab to buy equities, you could buy Coinbase to buy Bitcoin and other crypto. Now, the interesting thing here, Steve, is that we went out to the story and when we first covered it, it looked like the valuation was going to come public at around, 50 billion dollars which is about yeah. half of Charles Schwab's overall valuation right now which has taken decades to build now according to the Nasdaq private markets that valuation could be as high as 100 billion dollars today <laughs> so my bullish or bearish for you is let's split the difference is Coinbase's valuation above or below 75 billion dollars one year from now
1: oh goodness sakes that's um, it I'll I'll say above. Um, I, I think that's where it ends up. I think it's above 75 billion. Um, that would be, you know, assuming it, it drops, I think this is going to be a, a bonkers direct listing and, uh, that hundred billion dollar estimate was only issued like a, a day or so ago. Right. It was yesterday. I think I saw. Right. Um, so the, <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's above 75 billion. Um, be just uh given the tailwinds that the crypto in general despite the recent uh craziness and you know uh, you got bitcoin seemingly crashing and and everything I, I think with all the the tailwinds that the industry uh is has enjoyed and the the validation it's seeing with so many larger companies stepping in and buying um bitcoin in particular uh, as part of their balance sheet uh i i think, uh, that just serves as validation for the crypto space in general. And I think Coinbase serves as a key beneficiary of that. So uh, we'll we'll go above 75 billion a year from now.
0: Yeah. And do you think that they continue to leverage those enterprise relationships? I think you you kind of answered my follow-up question, uh, beat yeah. me to the punch, but you think that it, it becomes more than just commissions that they're charging to retail investors over time?
1: Yeah, I think it does. Um, I think there's a lot of ways for them to to leverage it instead of just charging, you know, uh, transaction fees on, on purchases and stuff. There's a lot more, uh, to this story. And I think, uh, yeah, I think Coinbase, Coinbase is an interesting way to play it. I'm not convinced yet that I want to buy it. Uh, you know, once it's eventually public, but, um, you know, Hey, uh, mine's going to be changed. So, so we'll see. Uh, I think it's going to be, uh, it'll be something that will dominate headlines for some time, um, going forward. And I think a lot more people are going to be paying attention.
0: Great. Well, thanks very much, Steve. Just to recap all of those, Steve is bullish on Coinbase over $75 billion. Manisha is bearish on 23andMe Plus for direct-to-consumers. Dan is very bullish on Disney hitting uh, 260 million subscribers by 2024. And we are maxed out on natural gas in the United States from Max Chatsko. Thank you for the entire team for entertaining my interest in spotting you up with questions that are totally off the cuff, just for the amusement of our podcast listeners. And thank you for everyone for tuning in to this podcast as we talk about mission statements and how they play a role in our investing research. Thanks again for tuning in. We're here to empower you to invest in your future. We are 7investing.
3: A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.